Welcome to the Friday subscribers only edition of the Hub Dialogues, the podcast of the Hub, Canada's leading source for insight and analysis into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. On these special Friday only broadcasts, we're going to be convening Sean Spear, our editor at large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor in chief, for a conversation with me, Rudyard Griffiths about the big stories and issues that have animated the public conversation over the last seven days. Our goal is to leave you with some new analysis and insights, and hopefully some new perspectives on the big issues of our time. So pull up a chair right now and join Sean Spear, Stuart Thompson, and myself for the Friday subscriber-only edition of the Hub Dialogues. Stuart, Sean, great to be in conversation with you on this Friday of a holiday long weekend, the second to last long weekend of the summer. Stuart, what's going to go on in the Thompson household? Uh, Not much. That's my plan for this weekend is as little as possible. It won't come off, but we're going to try our best. Okay. You're an avid jogger. So how many K are you going for this weekend? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm coming off an injury. So I'm, this is the week of the long run. So we'll see. Maybe I can do 15 on Sunday Nice. or I will fail miserably and be injured for the rest of August. Okay. Sean, are you joining Stuart for the 15 K? Uh, <laughs> I don't know what that is, you know, we, a third of a marathon. We should, we should start an internal, uh, an internal plan where I match uh, his miles and beers. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm on a bit of a suicide mission today, guys. Um, my, my wife and I are taking our 18-month-year-old uh, to the Ottawa airport to fly off to see his uh, grandparents and great-grandparents in, in Thunder Bay. So uh, wish us luck. I'll send... Yeah, Godspeed. Uh, yeah, exactly. The suicide mission, Sean, would be to drive with an 18-year-old from Ottawa <laughs> to North Bay. That would be the suicide yeah. mission. Yeah. Um, guys, a lot of great topics for us to do, dig into this week. We always try to kind of explore uh, two issues and events in the news that we think are important at the Hub, hopefully leaving our audience with some some new insights. I want to start with uh, the news, the big news out of the Conservative Party leadership race this week of uh, an endorsement, frankly, a, a bit of a surprise endorsement by former Prime Minister Stephen Harper of Pierre Polyev. Um Many people uh, obviously noted this. Uh, it's the first time really since Harper stepped down that he has in any kind of overt way come forward and endorsed a candidate in a leadership race. And as we like to here at the Hub, I mean, let's kick this around and try to figure out what's the dynamic here? What's going on? Why in the whatever this is, the last week of July, fully six plus weeks uh ahead or of the actual vote is this all important endorsement coming down Stuart what's your theory um I have my own but let's go around the horn yeah yeah so I think the least interesting part of this is that he endorsed Polyev I think we all could have guessed that 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 was his preferred candidate and that you know if it was an anti-endorsement it was an endorsement against Share. I think that's pretty obvious. Um, the question of why I think is really interesting. And I actually think that Harper is one of those guys that, you know, he's kind of an enigma sometimes. I, this is the kind of thing I don't expect to leak like his exact intentions. And I think, you know, we'll probably live in the world of speculation for a little while at least. Um, but I, if I were guessing, I would say, you know, we were sort of getting into the 
the midst of an elite freakout in the conservative party, you know, this certain, this sort of, you know, centerized conservative thing where they're, they're getting sort of a centrist conference together and Marjorie LeBreton was expressing concerns about Polyev. I think there was a few people getting uh, cold feet. And I think if you were to look at this as sort of a indication from Harper that, you know, he thinks that Polyev is fine and that actually not just fine, but is the best chance of beating Trudeau. Um, it's a signal to these people that maybe they should reconsider. Maybe they should um, get out of that bubble a little bit and see what the rest of the party and the country thinks of Polyev. I think it, right now he's still an unknown quantity to a lot of Canada. Uh, and I think Harper's been there himself and he attracted a lot of fairly hostile media in the early days of his leadership. So you can imagine that he understands the kind of situation that Polyev is in right now. Sean, what's uh, what's your take? You work for Harper. I mean, of all of us, uh, you have a measure of this guy. Um, why now? Yeah, I should start by emphasizing that I, I had no um, pre-knowledge advance warning of, uh, of this endorsement or we would have tried to get it at the hub, um, uh, not a video in a, in a boardroom in Western Canada. I, I think there's a lot to what, as Stuart says, I think one thing that people probably underestimate uh, about for pro former Prime Minister Harper um, is how integral the Conservative Party of Canada is to his personal and political legacy. Uh, remember, uh, he is the one with Peter McKay who put this party together uh, and then stood it up in time to compete in the 2004 election and then, of course, ultimately uh, to govern for you know almost a, a decade, and as Stuart says, in in recent uh, days and weeks, there's been growing conversation about uh, fracturing uh, on the right. Uh, in effect, undoing um, this uh, legacy of of the former prime ministers. You know, one thing that people often forget is that um, at its peak, the Reform Party was doing only about 17% nationally. So, you know, you don't, you can, you can get fracturing um, with, uh, with uh, new or different center-right parties only getting a relatively small share of the, the national popular vote. And I, I think there's a world, for instance, we've talked about this on previous episodes, where under a charade led Conservative Party, the PPC's, the People's Party of Canada's popular vote could go from 5% in 2021 to what in the next election? 12, 10%, 12%, 15%. For all intents and purposes, that would be undoing um, the, the legacy of a united uh, uh, right in Canada. So uh, for all of those reasons, I, I think that uh, this week's announcement is as much about protecting the legacy of Stephen Harper and the unity of the, the Canadian conservative movement, as it is anything about Pierre Polyev or um, Jean Chray for that matter. Yeah, I agree with those points. I'm curious what you guys think, though, about the timing. Um, I wonder, Stuart, if, and again, this is just conjecture, but I wonder if the Polyev campaign was seeing some numbers that they didn't like. Uh, in terms of the activation of the new members that they brought to this party. Because let's remember, these are 300,000 plus new members, uh, not all of them, but a lot of them have got, you know, ginned up on truckers protests and anti-mandate mandates and the World Economic Forum. Um, I don't know how much these folks are going to like the idea, which is required by the Conservative Party, of photocopying your driver's license on a physical piece of paper, like a little cumbersome, sticking that in the mail, mailing it, 
to Party HQ to become, uh, in a sense, verified to vote. Could there have been a scenario here, maybe where the Polyev campaign saw, you know, a Charest campaign uh, doing well in Quebec, uh, competitive in Ontario, uh, Polyev struggling to get out his vote in those regions, being over-indexed in Western Canada, and further to your point, it, it, creating a narrative if and when the vote happened, that in a sense Polyev was was a divider, not a uniter. And that the party, in a sense, uh, while maybe not in name, in reality, was splitting. Again, a lot of conjecture here, but I just I, I wonder about the timing of this. To me, it seems like the prime minister, the former prime minister Stephen Harper, is trying to get the existing party membership, which would be more equitably distributed in Ontario and Quebec, out voting for Polyev before either Sheree or the clock, uh, you know, closes the door on the ability to present Polyev as a, not only the winner, but the winner of a united conservative party. Yeah, I think that is very astute. I think that's definitely something to consider here. Um, and actually, I did speak to somebody in the Polyev campaign, and this was, you know, months ago at this point where I said, you know, you're doing these rallies, nobody will be um, upset at having huge rallies. But you are attracting a crowd that is very suspicious of authority. And the that exact thing about photo, photocopying your driver's license, we talked about that, and they admitted that it might be a problem. It might be something that is, you know, creates a burn rate on these members that will be a little higher than the other candidates. Um, so it is something that they've thought about. Um, the other thing that I would mention is that Pierre Polyev, um, I actually happen to be right next to his riding. I'm pretty familiar with the dynamics there. And I'm pretty familiar with how Polyev himself has handled that riding, which is that he just never stopped campaigning and working and knocking on doors. It's kind of in his nature. When he worked on committees, he was always one of the hardest working guys um, on the committee, maybe even in the party, maybe even on the Hill. Um, and he just never stopped. He always felt like he was about to lose. And that energy made him just, you know, do one more hour of door knocking. So uh, it wouldn't surprise me if the Polyev campaign, although they're confident, and, and at this point you asked me to put a bet on, I would still say it's a first ballot victory for Polyev. It wouldn't surprise me if they are kind of running around right now covering all those bases, because something else to note is that, you know, probably the first positive poll for Charest came out this week showing that, you know, he might be better off um, uh, as leader of the Conservatives. Uh, compared to Polyev in a federal election in terms of, you know, winning those, you know, swing voters we always talk about. Um, it's hard to say how much that poll matters, but it's like the first bit of positive news for Charest. And, you know, it can't help but make you a little nervous if you're in that campaign. May I just say two things uh, in response to uh, what the two of you have just said? The, the first is, I think Rudyard's point about Harper's message targeting uh, pre-existing conservative members over this um, infusion of new members that the Polyev campaign has signed up is is precisely right. Um, you know, think about it, guys. Stephen Harper hasn't been leader of the Conservative Party for seven years. Um, if you're if you're a younger voter who's entered politics essentially for the first time through the Polyev campaign because of gatekeepers and housing and crypto and, you know, God knows what else, um, Stephen Harper's uh, uh, just wouldn't have the same kind of salience in terms of uh, of, of an endorsement. You, you know, if, if you're 18, you were 11 when he left 
federal politics. Um, so I, I think you're exactly right that that this is less about trying to galvanize these um, new voters and, and more about speaking uh, to those who really trust Stephen Harper, which is the longstanding um, conservative party base. The, the second thing I'd just say on substance, you know, you know, if there's one thing I know about Mr. Harper, it's uh, his uh, kind of clarity of thought and precision. And the one phrase in his uh, his comments that struck me, uh, this is I'm paraphrasing, but he said something about um, challenging those institutions that have let us down or, or failed Canadians. And I interpreted that as a defense of uh, Polyev's criticisms of the Bank of Canada in general, and Tiff Macklem, uh, the governor of, of the Bank of Canada in particular. So at a time when, um, you know, both the mainstream media and even kind of centrist conservatives are criticizing Polyev on the grounds that this is uh, that his critique of the Bank of Canada and his commitment to fire the, the bank governor is somehow beyond the pale. You have in Harper, a former prime minister, an, an effective kind of institutionalist saying, no, no, guys, this is this isn't beyond the pale, that there is a, a justification here. And, and um, he didn't have to, you know, kind of explicitly say it, but I think it was the backdrop of, of that particular comment, which struck me as, as interesting. One final kick at this can, then we'll go on to our second topic. And let me just play a little bit of devil's advocate here. You know, Harper, to his credit, was a, uh, a political leader and a conservative who uh, held a party together with diverse factions with some some pretty, pretty you know, uh, radical views you know, at the time when when Harper was leader, um, he comes from, in a sense, the pre-populist, pre-Trump political stock of uh, the G7 advanced uh, industrial nations of the world. I mean, what does it mean, Stuart, when you have someone like Stephen Harper endorsing Pierre Polyev, who let's let's go through the list, guys. I mean, let's be honest here. This is a politician out of self-interest or belief who's fr fraternizing with uh, you know, a lot of populist memes where, and Sean's listed, listed them, whether it's crypto, whether it's uh, the Bank of Canada, uh, uh, the whole gatekeepers narrative, you know, fine, uh, that's good, fair politics. But what I don't like and what confuses me a bit about Harper's endorsement, uh, when I talk to my Jewish friends, this skepticism and footsie playing with the WEF haters, I think has a whiff of anti-Semitism to it. You have to remember that this is the oldest and most pernicious smear, that there is a cabal of, of rich, uh, uh, mysterious people pulling the strings of governments around the world. And, and the fact that Pierre Polyev has, as a matter of policy, indicated that his ministers, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe his policy is that his ministers will not attend WEF style events, I don't know, for me, that was a really a line too far. And I hope at some point he walks that back because I, I think there's something toxic there. Uh, yet Stephen Harper was one of the most, uh, I think, staunch, uh, rightly so, supporters of uh, Israel and the Jewish community. And I'm just wondering, you know, I get it. Politics makes for strange bedfellows. It makes for compromises. But Frankly, guys, that's a bridge too far for me. Yeah, I, so the uh, the World Economic Forum thing 
it is beyond the pale. Like it is one of those things that I, if I had my preference, no mainstream politician would touch that. And I think that was probably a mistake by Polyev. Um, I had never actually considered well, Stuart, it as- if it was a mistake, walk it back. Walk yeah. it back. Cause this is not, this is not, you know, just off the cuff crypto stuff. And actually crypto is up the last couple of weeks. So maybe, <laughs> you know, to be Pierre's credit, but this other stuff that this is toxic guys. I mean, I, we can debate the convoy and mandates, but this WEF stuff, man, come on guys, let's, we got to call anti-Semitism out when we see it and whatever guys and, you know, dress up, it appears in, and this this is sending a message to a certain constituency out there, who are anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic. Uh, this is bad, bad stuff. Yeah, I, maybe that was the impetus for Harper's endorsement. Is this crypto portfolio was going up, and that association with Polyev <laughs> was just good. Um, I, you know, maybe call me naive, and maybe it's just because I sort of resolutely don't want to go down these rabbit holes. But I'd never clocked the WF thing as anti-Semitic. I saw it as sort of crazy and I see what you mean, how it does have some kind of parallel to a lot of those anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Um, but you know, more than anything, it's just really dumb. Um, there is a lot of criticisms you can make to a lot of these sort of Davos, you know, UN type things where uh, the self-importance is massively out of scale compared to the actual usefulness of these organizations. And I think there's a lot of really normal criticisms you can make. It's the same with the WHO and the pandemic, which screwed up a lot. But then there is a line where it just gets kind of nutty, um, you know, but I, I think this is something we kind of have to reckon with, because if you've seen the Leslin Lewis campaign emails, I mean, 50% of them are about WEF. Um, so, you know, if I had my preference, you know, these mainstream candidates wouldn't touch it, but there's definitely something going on here. Let me let me say two things on, the, on this topic. First of all, uh, I seem to recall one of uh, Prime Minister Harper's most important policy speeches over the course of his tenure as Prime Minister was in January 2012 at the World Economic Forum, where he, amongst other things, uh, pre-positioned uh, the change to the old age security program, um, uh, which was a big deal at the time. So um, it, there is a kind of cognitive dissonance and it uh, within conservative politics that in, you know, basically a decade, we've gone from a conservative prime minister using the World Economic Forum as a platform um, to, to make major policy pronouncements and promote Canada as a, uh, a place where, uh, you know, big reform was happening and, and where investment was welcome to now, as you say, are the, the front runner um, uh, making his opposition to the World Economic Forum a kind of central part of his message. The second thing I'd say is the right critique of the World Economic Forum is not that it's <laughs> running uh, the the world's governments from you know behind the curtain. It's that it's completely relevant, right? Um, these guys can't tie their own shoelaces. Uh, you know, the, the, they're you know every month there's a new in, in industrial revolution 4.0 or 5.0 paper that you know is read amongst uh, a small and mostly irrelevant group of 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 you know what David Goodhart described as the anywheres. Um, you know, but the idea that Klaus Schwab is running global governments, I think, gives Mr. Schwab uh, far too much credit. And that's actually the proper critique of the the World Economic Forum is that it uh, is is not that it's um, it's not its uh, reach. It's it's in some ways how 
constrained it is. And I, I guess just the, the the bigger point I'd make, and this is something that David Frum has raised a lot uh, on our um, biweekly podcast, which is uh, conservatives across the Anglosphere need to start to articulate a vision of globalization that probably doesn't look quite like it did um, before the pandemic or before we came to, I think, fully appreciate the expansionary ambitions of China. But we can't go back to where we were um, pre-1980s, right? That there's a kind of mid-ground here um, and conservatives need to be the ones communicating that vision because for a lot on the, uh, you know, for uh, for those on, on the kind of left these days, um, there's been a kind of flip-flop, hasn't there? That the, the kind of open borders, anti-nationalism, kind of globalism message is, is increasingly uh, concentrated on the left. And so if we're going to have a kind of responsible globalization, it's going to have to come from conservatives. And that's just another example of, of, of a big picture issue that hasn't been part of this leadership campaign. Great analysis, uh, as always, Sean. Um, just conscious of our time, so I'm going to skip our usual break and not subject our audience to my dulcet tones trying to convince them to become a hub member but hey if you want to join go to our website triple uh, w the hub.ca let's just in our remaining moments we're trying to keep these shows to an efficient half hour and a tad talk about um what's happened in the united states this past week in terms of uh, a second quarter of uh, negative gdp and i mentioned this not to do a deep dive into the u.s economy and what may be driving uh, this economic downturn, but to talk instead about the potential reverberations uh, here in Canada. You know, the old adage, uh, when, you know, the United States sneezes, we come down with the bubonic plague, vis-a-vis uh, -vis our economies, uh, has held for a long, long time. And there's signs now, I think, in Canada, we'll see, we've got some uh, monthly GDP numbers today, but more importantly, the quarterly uh, GDP coming up. Stuart, let me start with you. I mean, how how much do you think this is on the minds of voters? I feel like we're in the we're in we're in the summer. I feel like people are aware of it, but it's not really internalized yet. Economic anxiety, while there, I don't know. It, to, to me, it doesn't feel like it's reached any kind of crescendo yet. The restaurants are full. People are traveling. There is, I feel, the moment of that kind of post-pandemic high that's going on right now. You know, get on with your life, do all the things on the bucket list. Uh, does this all come home to roost in the fall? Yeah, I think so. And that, I think we've had that sort of low-lying anxiety about rising prices. I think that is, you know, it's just a frustration people feel. And actually, gas prices are going down. So that's a big, I think that's a big psychological boost for a lot of people because that's the price you always see. It's the one that hurts the most every time you fill up your car. Um, so I think we are in a bit of a lull now, but you know, this is what is also happening right now is the housing market is undergoing the beginnings of a correction. And uh, I, I think this is going to be more of an issue than maybe I realized because you know, prices are definitely going down. I know that from, you know, having friends and relatives uh, in the market at the wrong time to be in the market. Um, things are starting to happen. We saw a recent, I think it was an RBC report saying something like a 40% correction by the time this is over in 2023. Even if it comes close to that, say 30% or even 25%, that is going to affect people who are in sort of the latter stages 
of their lives. They're in retirement. They were hoping to sell their home. They probably got excited during the pandemic that they were going to get this huge windfall from their home when they do sell it. And now that's coming down to earth. Um, pair that with a recession, pair that with any kind of economic strife. And I think you have a serious problem for a federal government that is going to be relying on those voters at some point. So I, I think you know, there was some speculation about a fall election. That would be insane to me if that were to happen because there's so many unknowns. And the the a deal that Trudeau has with the NDP that takes us, you know, theoretically to 2025, that's about the time you would think this stuff starts to clear up. So maybe they've got some good economic minds in the Liberal Party who said, you guys are going to want some shelter for the next couple of years. And then you can think about going to the polls because I think it's going to get a little bit ugly. Yeah, I think there's a lot there. Um, the former U.S. Treasury Secretary Larry Summers has said in recent days that um, historical analysis tells us that when in the U.S. economy, inflation is more than 4% and unemployment is less than 4%, the likelihood of a recession within 12 to 24 months is very high. And right now we have in the U.S. inflation at 9% and unemployment at 3%. Um, so I, I was on television uh, earlier this week and the host asked me, what should the Canadian government be doing to try to mitigate the effects of inflation and, and, and achieve a soft landing? And I said, you know, yeah, we need to talk about what Tiff Macklin's doing and what Christia Freeland is doing, and we can debate policy on the margins. But the truth is, um, so much of what Canada's economy is going to look like in the next 12 or 24 months is what happens in the United States, as, as Rudyard said. And um, all signs look pretty tough. Um, and so... As Rudyard said, we'll have uh, Q2 numbers out next month in Canada. We managed we managed to achieve positive growth in Q1. I think there's a strong likelihood we're into negative growth in Q2, in effect matching uh, what's happening in the United States. And and the kind of political economy consequences of that, is, as Stuart says, could could be significant um, across the country. Uh, I, you know, one thing I... I've said a couple of times in, in different venues is it just seems like I don't know if you guys agree with this that we seem to be kind of moving from crisis to crisis. Uh, you know, we've gone from uh, the, the pandemic to uh, now concerns about inflation and 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 now growing expectations of a recession. I just think that is going to exhaust people and it's going to cause people to to want to uh, punish governments and so. Yeah, that's the kind of funny thing, right? We're having this debate about Polyev and Sheree and the future of the Conservative Party. But the truth is, uh, the next federal election outcome may happen irrespective of who's leading the Conservative Party of Canada because of uh, these, these economic conditions. You know, what, what's your take, Rudyard? Yeah, just two final observations. One, you know, not to say that a, a fall election is likely, but if you were trying to think of the window to squeak in under before the opportunity closes because the economy truly is in recession, housing is correcting, uh, you have uh, the misery index kind of soaring, well, it will be this fall. So I think if, if there is a chance for an election, we're going to see that happen and we'll know sooner rather than later. And then you're right, Stuart. I think the window closes for an extended uh, period of time. My second observation, again, to mention Larry Summers is, you know, in his, as usual, excellent. And this was commentary this week, but this guy was also pretty prescient about warning on inflation over the last 18 months. Only him you and know, Pierre Pauly have got it right. Yeah. He, <laughs> he said in a sense that the, you know, based on, on 
you know, past uh, inflation fights and the, the extent to which the United States is at full employment plus right now, you have to match demand with supply. And his view was that, you know, the Fed and the markets and everyone are assuming, uh, you know, a kind of terminal rate for interest rate hikes in the 3.5, 3.7, 3 3.8 range. He and other economists are saying, you know, it, it could be more like 5%. And, you know, if the U.S. Federal Reserve has to take uh, interest rates, overnight rates to 5%, we are going to have to follow for currency reasons, for uh, all kinds of, all kinds of uh, factors are going to drive us, if not to match, to, to go beyond what would be a comfort zone and a half for, especially for homeowners and for variable rate owners. So, you know, this last week has been interesting because, you know, uh, markets have boomed, crypto's up. Oil was up too. It breached $100 a barrel again. Financial conditions have actually loosened. And you can see, in a sense, this struggle. And this is what we're going to have to watch over the coming quarters. There's some schools out there, David Rosenberg and others, who think that inflation is going to come down exceedingly fast. And again, we're talking about the rate of change. So it's not about getting rid of all the inflation that's happened. That's really a tragedy because it's happened. The 7 8% in Canada, you've lost that purchasing power for good. And if you're low income, and your wages are not keeping up, that's purchasing power for food, groceries, education, everything that's gone away pretty much forever, unless we have a bout of deflation, unlikely. So, you know, think about this, I think, carefully, because we could have a, you know, a scenario where, you know, inflation remains sticky. You know, what's going to happen in Europe this fall? Putin's turning off the gas. Energy prices are going to soar. You know, supply chains could snarl this time out of Europe. Uh, certainly, inflation, uh, the purchasing uh, producers index soaring, you know, in Germany as German confidence reaches levels not seen during the height of the pandemic. I, I, I just, I think there's a lot of complacency out there and a lot of kind of magical and wishful thinking that this whole inflation thing is going to go away by Q1, Q2, 2023. The markets will rip, mortgage rates will come down, and you know it's back to the the kind of low interest rate, free free money world of the of the post great financial crisis. And I I just think if you're thinking of that way, you might be right. But what do I know? But at the same time, be careful because there's the 1970s would say this is a longer, slower grind to get inflation out of the system when all the central banks, Tiff Mecklen and uh, Chairman Powell this week, were explicit about a 2% inflation target, not 2.5, not 3%, not 4%. So they got to get from 8 9% rate of change down to 2 at at $100 a barrel of oil. Sorry, that doesn't work. Yeah, can I just um, um, mention something here? Uh, it's great analysis, as always, Roger. And, and I just can't help but think that this uh, opens up a, an opportunity to start to talk about kind of reconceptualizing the way we've done economic policy making. You know, there's so much of our growth for the better part of a decade have come from the kind of world of intangibles, whether it's uh, software or the internet on one hand, or in the Canadian case, uh, housing wealth. And, you know, it seems to me. Uh, or just rank, rank financialization of everything and everything. 
Exactly. The crux of this uh, runaway inflation is um, this massive supply crunch because we've uh, we've tied our economy up into knots with um, regulation and and uh, mandates, you know, etc. Um, the Harvard economist Ed Glazer distinguishes between what he calls rich person entrepreneurship and poor person entrepreneurship. If you want to create an app, you know. Uh, we have a live, live and let live attitude. If you want to open a hot dog stand or a laundromat, you know, start writing the paperwork now. And uh, here's where, again, if Polyev can start to, Ben Woodenfin wrote for, the, wrote for us on this a, a couple of weeks ago. If he can start to pivot uh, from a, a kind of rhetorical poise about gatekeepers to a, um, a policy agenda focused on, on galvanizing the supply side of our economy, um, you know, he could really could be fishing with, with dynamite here, um, but that's up to Polyev to um, kind of seize the opportunity. Yeah. And let's drop the WEF stuff, man. Walk that back. Uh, you know, I really think if his campaign is thinking about actually governing, he's got to walk that back before uh, the vote uh, in September. Okay, guys, uh, that's a wrap up for this edition of Hub Dialogues, our weekly roundtable with Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, Sean Spear, our editor-at-large. We'll do this all again next Friday, guys. Have a great long weekend. Take care, gentlemen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this special Friday edition of the Hub Dialogues for subscribers only. Hope you've enjoyed the program. If you have a comment or suggestion about the show, an issue, topic and idea that you'd like us to cover on our regular Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues, please send us an email to info at thehub.ca. Also, check out our website, www.thehub.ca, for tons of great analysis and insights about the big issues and ideas shaping our world and Canada's future. While you're there, if you'd like to, consider becoming a donor. We'd love to have your support. Simply click on the donate button. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and you'll get a whole series of great benefits and perks that come with being a hub donor. This edition and every edition of the Friday subscriber-only hub dialogues are produced by Ricky Gerwitz. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of the hub. Talk to you again next Friday. Bye-bye.